Hello to our listeners and welcome to episode six of Voltec Tech Talks. I'm sitting here with Shabazz and today we'll be discussing automation. My name is John Hewson. How are you doing today, Shabazz? I'm doing pretty well, John. How about yourself? Not too bad, thanks. So, discussing broadly the current shift in automation, we will be discussing it as a technological technological trend and evolution. I suppose a good way to start off with this discussion is to go through the historical nature of this issue. So this is not actually the first instance of an automation revolution. And in order to understand its significance, it might be pertinent to discuss at some depth the industrial revolution of the 1800s. So when we think about the industrial revolution, obviously what comes to mind uh, steam engines and the newly found combustion of fossil fuels using that newly founded technology to increase overall human productivity as well as increasing the level of welfare felt by society but apparently that's a bit of a misconception and for the first hundred years of the industrial revolution the working class suffered significantly particularly for the first 70 years, the working class's quality of life reduced substantially and they suffered the brunt of it. So they lost out significantly here because of the nature of how machinery largely took over the labor sector. I think factory lines, tractors, harvesters, humans had to move more towards service related industries. And in the meantime, there were a lot that were out of a job. The ultimate result of this was basically hard fought for but it manifested the modern social welfare state so one example of how this was hard fought for is the strike of 100,000 so basically 70,000 mine workers in Germany occupied Belgium at the time organized a strike which ultimately resulted in wage increases of i believe eight percent but a large number of arrests as well i believe this was in 1942 or approximately that date so during this time period we also witnessed a lot of concurrent socialist revolutions international movements towards greater degrees of socialist policy in states yeah that's pretty intense harry i mean I mean, yeah, like when you just think about that, the Industrial Revolution definitely has quite a few parallels to what's going on right now because you see the, I guess, the commonalities. You see these um, people who are very used to their jobs. Um, some would say they're very successful in them. Uh, you've got your average person in those days probably working in, as you said, labor-related jobs from factories to farming, right? Agriculture. And you have these machines coming in here and almost taking their jobs away. And people don't usually, um, I guess, taking away so many livelihoods, you would have quite a bit of a fight, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Poverty became very widespread throughout that period. And yeah, as I said, the standard of living dropped dramatically because suddenly there are a lot of people who are really no longer accounted for by society. So I think it's interesting and important to acknowledge 
that the current wave and the previous wave I mean, being the industrial revolution are basically we might be able to view them as different steps on the ladder of technological progress which may ultimately remove humans from a necessary workforce in that there will be less need and less place for humans to contribute economically in uh, after they've been replaced by this technology and so one of the distinctions we must draw is that in the industrial revolution they were more crude machines and the primary difference between what they experienced during that wave and what is being experienced in this wave is that we must not underestimate the power of machine learning and AI to take over a different sector of jobs this time. Service jobs are not really safe in this instance anymore because of the way in which the new wave of automation will be more better equipped to take over these jobs. Yeah, that's very interesting you say that. Um, but I'm just thinking, right? So apparently we're automating um, to make our lives easier, which is kind of ironic, right? Um, in a sense that I think one of the major components of like human satisfaction is being able to do meaningful work. And I feel like people really thrive on that. Um, so it really brings to question like, yes, people did lose their jobs previously, but a big argument is that people can just retrain over a few couple of decades or something. Um, don't quote me on that. Maybe it's not a couple of decades, but yeah, people can definitely retrain, readjust and um, adapt to the changing climate. But in the industrial revolution, um, we can see people's jobs changing from fairly simple tasks like you just described, right? Like pressing and I guess harvesting. Um, and they probably shifted to maybe more, um, I guess, uh, service-based jobs. But I guess the question is, that transition of retraining seems pretty simple. But what would the transition look like um, with our current almost um, automation revolution, right? So these other machines of automation from the industrial area, we can consider sewing machines, automated welding systems, printing presses on larger scales. So they're all equipped to substitute for laborious sort of factory line or yeah, basically just simpler tasks. In a way, this new wave of automation is more egalitarian across the board in that there are jobs from both the sort of labor sector and services sector, which are highly likely to be replaced by automation to some degree. So apparently three occupations with very high probability of automation are waiters and waitresses, shelf fillers, and elementary sales occupations. Um, on top of that, we have truck drivers. A lot of the financial sector has been automated away already. A lot of stock trading happens due to bots these days. Definitely. And the question is, if um, other parts of the economy aren't already oversaturated, because you've got these people doing these jobs, like all the way from like um, 
Uber drivers or Lyft drivers, taxi drivers.、Um, basically, the moment you can automate something as big as driving, you've got this mass, mass、um, job loss、um, phenomena happening, where you really do start thinking, how can you like one? Yes, if they retrain one, what would they do?、Uh, what do you even retrain to? Because Like like I said, back in the industrial revolution, it was pretty um, it was it wasn't straightforward, but there was at least a pathway, right? You go towards service jobs, but now it looks like even service jobs are being automated. Like think about accounting, um, we've got zero, for instance, like this massive accounting um program that makes it very easy for your average person to do all of their accounting stuff. Okay, so you can't do that anymore, and I'm sure there are many, many other jobs that just service jobs that just can't be transitioned to anymore. So, in addition to all of these people leaving, like these drivers, for instance, you've also got these other people, like accountants, that just can't get gigs either. So you've got this massive, massive amount of people、uh, without really a place to go. It, it kind of makes you wonder if we might. Uh, be approaching a different type of economy, right? Like, how are we going to, how are we going to have people earn their living? Will it be、uh, a slightly more socialist in the sense that everyone gets monetary assistance? And yeah, I mean, what do you think? Monetary assistance is that the way to go with this? Yeah. So on that, reskilling and retraining is always a possibility. I have personally seen some data which seems to be suggestive of humans having a difficult time actually reskilling, and that in it's more of a theoretical than a practical thing for a lot of people. Some of this information I had heard from I don't know if you'd heard of Andrew Yang, a man who is running for president in the U.S. dropped out since, but his flagship model was UBI, and he based the premise of his argument on that. Automation basically necessitates UBI, and that basically labor hours can only really be going one way at this point. In so thereby suggesting that there is less of a place for human influence in a value creating, a value adding or creating economy at this point. Slash in the short to medium term future. So I believe there are about. Seven million truck drivers in the United States, and whilst the idea of reskilling and retraining people seems like a logical step to take, the num the sheer number of people who will be out of employment might necessitate further action on top of that. Seven percent. That's about. That's over two percent of the entire United States population. So, are we able to really, realistically generate jobs elsewhere, which can be filled by these people? Can we realistically suggest that this entire swathe of a population can actually reskill and find different practical work? I think 
in reality, it might actually demonstrate itself to be a very difficult issue to tackle. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting poll you've just found. Um, yeah, that's surreal, isn't it? Um, if there if there are so many purposeless jobs, maybe this is the way to go. But I don't know. Just the whole like, just reflecting on it, right? What do you think of the inequality that would be caused by this? Because I can see the people that actually. Um, I don't want to be like too um, arrogant in thinking this, but a lot of the software engineers or people that can actually make the automation happen would earn significantly more than the majority of the population that would be on this almost welfare. Um, And I guess that sparks the question that would having a job with such a limited skill set in this economy put you at a massive advantage to almost everyone else, right? Yeah, I think it's an inevitability. If we think and consider about technological progress... I believe that it should be in the name of improving standards of living for people throughout society. And if that is the case, we should and ought to reach an asymptote at some point at which little to nobody actually has to work anymore. And if we were to apply our current means of economic thinking that in order to earn your living, you have to face a traditional form of employment, then At that point, we will not be able to support the majority of our population because there are suddenly no jobs left to be done. And in the absence of a welfare state, all of society will be worse off. So I think when the majority of society, or at least a significant enough portion of it, that's when we'll start to see those sorts of shifts. Something that we're kind of seeing in Australia right now with the newly found inclusion of a lot of people in government welfare payments. It used to be the case that I think sub 1 million people were on it, but now there's one and a half million people. Hope I'm not fudging those numbers, but yeah, I think that's coronavirus COVID-19 has prompted at least Australia to stare down this barrel and consider these issues. But following on the idea of, finding satisfaction from one's work. So this poll in 2017 from the UK, I believe it's 37% of adults surveyed report that they feel like their job is utterly useless. And maybe a takeaway we can claw away from this is that we already have a significant amount of bloating in our economies and markets. And that maybe we've already been generating bloating jobs that are not so purposeful just for the sake of running a hamster wheel, you know? So perhaps we already have a lot of relatively purposeless jobs. 12 minutes 50. Yeah. So I guess we're talking about the balance of power struggle there to a degree. So... Interestingly, we were discussing earlier the Industrial Revolution. At and around that time and in its wake, there was a bit of a surge in sort of socialist and communistic revolutions. Seemingly somewhat prompted by the Industrial Revolution, broadly speaking. And so 
those uprisings and revolutions can maybe be seen as a symptom of general dissatisfaction with the way in which the labor market went basically because people do see their employment as a means to live they were disenfranchised and so these socialist ideologies started to creep into the societal discussion significantly more and I think we will begin to see a similar sort of shift, although like certainly not quite as radical, but it will be more inclusive in that more people are vulnerable to this current displacement of jobs. So we kind of saw a bit of that in, in, um, in Bernie Sanders, US presidential nominee, no, not nominee, um, candidate, but who dropped out several months ago. Um, actually, no, scratch that. Generally speaking, I think there will be a significant resurgence of the discussion of free market capitalism versus some relative strain of socialist democracy. This is quite relevant to capital accumulation. So the tech giants who get to employ significant degrees of automation in their business model are the ones who get to reap a lot of the rewards. So Amazon is a good case study of this. Over the past few years, they've been gradually introducing automation systems in their warehouses, which have ultimately resulted in them laying off many thousands of workers and now they have these robots that can automatically track and retrieve items and stack shelves and perform a lot of different tasks but basically they will recover these costs within two years and because of the compounding effect of capital accumulation amazon's concentration of power is destined to become much more significant they're going full electric and i assume possibly self-driving at some point in the future too. So those are other links in the supply chain, which will completely make them undefeatable to smaller competitors. So do they really deserve, just because they have this unique position of being able to take advantage of all of these different aspects of capital accumulation or does society deserve to, I don't know, share in some of those spoils? Because, I mean, there is there really ought to be some practical limit to the degree of supposed monetary success a person should have from some venture. Maybe society should come in and step in at some point. At X billion dollars, who knows? Something very interesting then. Uh, I guess two things. One... Um, the first thing is, yeah, you mentioned Amazon having this um, massive impact and being one of those companies that really do have this compounding effect of income generation, right? Um, and my question to you is, isn't that somewhat similar to what's already been happening? 
Like, you go outside and you go to the shopping center, and there are very few bookstores outside. Um, you go out and you see that retail isn't doing that well. You can already see that these big tech corporations have already started, I guess, minimizing jobs almost. So maybe this isn't such a big, I guess, change as we think it is, because I think it may have already been like, almost like it's already been happening for quite a while, but this will just be a much bigger, a much bigger extent of what's happening. I mean, have you heard of the Amazon Go stores? I think there's one that opened up in New York recently. I haven't actually heard much about them. What's their deal? Yeah, so... So the whole idea is, right, you've got, um, you've got these stores where you can just walk inside and it identifies you almost instantly. Um, you walk inside, you go to a section, you can just pick up whatever you want off the shelf, put it in your bag, and then walk out. And you can automatically pay for all of these items without having to ha- see even one human being. I think the shelves are automatically um, stocked as well. Don't quote me on that one, but I'm pretty sure they have very, very low staff numbers for stocking things as well. Um, It's just surreal, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think they're a little... I think they're basically your small to medium convenience store, but they um, sell groceries as well. Um, Yeah. And they just do, like, um, I think they're currently focusing on, like, fresh produce and dinner, household essentials, those kinds of things. Um, But, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I was going on earlier. I feel like these things have already started happening, and maybe we're going to start seeing them happen more, and we'll start noticing when more and more people are out of these jobs, you know? Yeah, it goes hand in hand with economies of scale and capital accumulation with these larger shopping franchises and chains. So going on the example of how a lot of local shops and businesses tend to close due to, say, large shopping centers and complexes and multinational stores, Um, basically because smaller stores are less capable of dealing with these enhanced supply chains and big companies with economies of scale, it's very difficult to compete with them. And as they become larger and larger and accumulated more it's become increasingly difficult for these smaller businesses to compete on any level and because of that it it appears to be because in practice it has happened a sort of inevitability that a lot of these online retailers are the future of this industry because they're inherently more efficient they cost us less to get the same product because of their economies of scale an example of this in australia could be kogan um can't name any of the companies that they've basically undercut but they have very competitive pricing and i've only had two orders from their website but the shipping seems to work fine um but again economies of scale is how they manage to compete substantially and outperform a lot of these other stores which are now closing I don't believe they have any physical stores. Definitely. So the whole idea is, as you get larger and you become more efficient with your processes, right? Just for those of us um, listening in who haven't actually um, maybe looked into economics too much. 
um, economies of scale. It's just the general idea is as you get larger, your total operating costs become smaller and smaller. So you can see this with Amazon, for instance. Um, they could probably find a way to reduce their expenditure through decreasing, I guess, making deals with shipping. So smaller businesses that need to ship out, they wouldn't have those same low shipping costs, and that cost would probably be put on the consumer. Um, you can see it with uh, companies with massive warehouses versus a company that's just, I guess, packaging stuff from a really small shop, right? Um, as you get larger, the amount of time it takes and the cost of packaging one boxed item would be much, much smaller if you're doing many more than it would be if you're doing it one by one by hand. Um, do you think that's a good summarization of economies of scale? Yeah, absolutely. I guess a way I might dumb it down a little would be that the rich tend to get richer. Definitely. Basically because there are always running costs to a business. Think of think of the business as a person for one second. So it is easier to amass more money the more you have because you always spend a certain amount on maintaining your own life on things like clothes, rent, utilities. So every cent beyond your initial $20,000 a year or whatever is worth more down the line because you're less likely to be spending it. Yeah, completely. Um, so it's actually quite um, it's quite interesting, and it definitely does tie into all of these um, paradigm shifts. I guess these big tech corporations automating, cutting down their costs, becoming more and more efficient, and just accumulating income. Um, it's interesting. It's very very interesting. And I personally, um, without going into politics too deep here, I mean, I think communism is going to be something that's definitely considered a lot more and maybe not in its pure form i i don't think that would work um but i think countries are definitely going to start pulling ideas from that branch of political thinking and ideology okay at the heart of communist marxist theory the idea is that the means of production should be shared by society and we were discussing universal basic income earlier so I think that going hand in hand with stringent and effective taxation laws, because Amazon, for instance, has paid little to no tax in the US, probably other countries over the last few years, um, which small businesses have to pay. There's no way for them to exploit that. So this is another example of how these huge multinationals can pull the strings even more in their own favor. Yeah. Have you heard of the new Tesla factory? Uh, on that note, yeah, no, no, there's a new one that might be opening in Texas by the looks of it. This is this came out in the news a couple of days ago. Um, and all of these um, states are basically, um, like, of course, due to recent pandemic, um, due to the recent pandemic, you've got a lot of people losing jobs. So um, Tesla announced that they're going to open a new factory in the U.S. And a lot of states are like pitching themselves as potential homes for these factories. Um, and they're trying to give Tesla massive tax write-offs in their states. I think Texas has either made it completely tax-free for Tesla to incentivize them to build over there or some very, very, very low amount of tax. Um, 
Yeah, so these massive corporations, it may not even be them scheming, but I feel like they've become so valuable to econom- to the economy of wherever they go. Um, there's definitely an argument to be made that people are trying to incentivize them or country counties are trying to incentivize them to move to them um, with a lack of tax at a bigger scale, almost similar to what um, Apple's allegedly been doing in Ireland, right? Yeah, it's an interesting trade-off, giving these interesting little tax incentives to the larger corporations. But so it increases meaningful jobs to workers, but and also increases the output of the state. So exactly. So it's definitely grey and nuanced. I don't think. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting topic to talk about. It certainly is. Just moving on to a slightly different note. Shabazz, do you think that AI or automation has any place or might ever overtake our own human politics? <laughs> oh, that's a very that's a very loaded question. Um, yes and no. Uh, probably not in the way that most people think it will. Um, but I believe it it must already be taking place. Uh, it must already be making an impact in politics. Um, yeah, I mean, in what way? Well, interestingly, I discovered this today, but that in the Japanese city of Tama, in the Tokyo region, a robot was running for the local office of mayor. The robot was propped up by two wealthy, powerful businessmen with ties to SoftBank and Google. And I can't comment on the efficacy of its AI and decision-making or the intentions of the businessmen creators behind its construction. But the robot did receive 4,000 votes in the election and it came third. Part of its election promise was that it would use AI to analyze the positive and negative aspects of petitions and use that to accurately calculate methods to dispute resolution and help the society in that way. How crazy is that? I think that's complete, um, for lack of a better word, BS. Um, that's insane. Um, I don't, yeah, like just going back to the whole idea of artificial intelligence, um, it works off this, well, there are different branches of artificial intelligence, of course. Um, but a very common form of artificial intelligence is a subset of AI called, um, or actually more accurately, machine learning, um, called supervised learning. I don't know if we, I think we may have spoken about this on the podcast before, but the whole idea is that you give this, um, this, I guess, black box, um, you put something in to this, I guess, black box and the black box gives you out, um, uh, I guess, a determination in this case um, of what is right or what is wrong. Of course, it gets a lot more complicated than that. But the general foundation of the theory is that you need to be able to give it data where you tell it this is a good choice and this is a bad choice. Therefore, there have been a lot of um, instances where artificial intelligence has a a bias um, because um, it's actually working off preconceived data. Um, which obviously still has that um, that human error, I guess. I don't know if you've heard of this, um, but the UK 
the UK government recently used facial recognition AI to check tra- travelers' photos when they apply for passports to determine um, whether they're in a high-risk category or not. Um, using previous data, and they're like, "This is amazing. This is this means that we can get rid of all of the racism um, that's currently present in the, uh, I guess, well, what do you even call it? I guess, upon entering a country, right?" So, ironically enough, ironically enough, um, they started doing this. There were massive amounts of racial biases because they were training it on data that was previously. Um, previously used, um, well, I guess they're training it on data that was obviously trained by humans that had massive racial biases. So, in the same sense, um, it's hilarious that these um, that these election promises are being made. That it's going to be completely, um, it's going to be completely unbiased. It's going to make good decisions. I mean, no, it's just not possible. You know, at least to my knowledge, in this day and age. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a massive, massive branch of um, law that's up and coming, um, that's I guess analyzing um, the legal implications of artificial intelligence, and um, if an artificial intelligent decision is made um, and something goes wrong, who do we hold accountable? Do we hold the data scientists accountable that fed the data in? Do we hold the company accountable that developed the model? Do we hold the programmer accountable? Do we hold um, the people that the model was based on accountable? I mean, it's really, really complex, you know? You can have so many uh, crimes that don't even have a culprit, which doesn't really seem right. Yeah. On that note, I saw in one of Musk's interviews... He was commenting on what degree of safety might be required by regulators. Will self-driving cars have to be twice as safe? Will they have to be five or ten times as safe as a regular human? He was posturing that basically regulators won't consider them being as safe, which I can understand. Um, You'd want to raise the bar higher rather than equal or lower. But I guess it's a, another nuanced question, how, how we can just come to a genuine solution. Yeah, like right now, if that happens, I believe um, the process is, well, Tesla, I don't think is actually, at the time when these cases came out, um, they were still training the cars, I guess. So human intervention was required. You were meant to be supervising your car. So it's very easy to hold the driver accountable there. But I think it's going to get more and more nuanced if this, which inevitably it will, um, happens in the future when the driver is not told to be accountable. Um, it's just super weird. <laughs> Definitely, but I don't know if you've um, ever trained an artificial intelligent model before. Um, or, <laughs> or even have you looked into linear regression uh, during your career? Um, the whole idea is that you can generate a model um, and different people could fit their models differently. Uh, That basic idea kind of applies to self-driving cars. Um, And I'm pretty sure that different companies are going to have different artificial intelligence models 
And it'll be very, very interesting to see how they test their safety and how they actually guarantee that it's two times as safe as a human being. And once we're used to these cars driving around for us, will we have some standard on, I guess, I'm pretty sure things will start to relax and more and more car makers will be allowed to make automated cars. But it really does make you think whether these models are going to be as good as each other or whether they'll all have different error rates and how thoroughly we'll be testing those. But hey, more automation uh, of driving leads to, I'd assume, a lot less driving jobs. Do you think it's a good thing, though? I mean, just, I think this is a pretty pretty loaded personal question, but where do you sit? Yeah, well, I think that in the future, people won't have to work for their incomes, and that for the most part, professions will be on a more voluntary basis, and that your livelihood will not be dependent upon it. This would require a UBI. Yeah, of course. Um, You would obviously need a universal basic income, right? Uh, For that to happen, but I don't know. I mean, John, it's just insane, and I'm still on the fence. I feel like I I really do believe that people, uh, uh, the majority of people, it's just a preconceived notion I have that um, people really do need meaningful work to be satisfied in life. And while, yeah, given a UBI, they can go ahead and do any amount of meaningful work they'd want. But I also think sometimes people need a bit of an incentive, a bit more of a stick than a carrot to go ahead and do their meaningful work. Yeah, but at present, I guess I would suggest that it's kind of very much more the stick. It's very much the case that if you do not work right now, most people are not able to support themselves. But In the other case, it would be a mixture of both. I don't believe that professions will die out. There will always be some case for jobs and human influence in decision-making. But I think ultimately data shows that the UBI is ultimately a positive force for society. It would increase the level of welfare in jobs because the onus would then be on employers to actually, you know, attract workers to them rather than vice versa. And it makes society a simpler place. And I guess the question is, do you think that this would lead to... um, I mean, I know that a lot of our productivity comes from the stick of needing an income. Um, It really does make me wonder if people would be... If human development, like we've been developing rapidly since the Industrial Revolution, since we sent children into schools and said, hey... We want you to learn maths and science, and children just mindlessly did it. But the truth was, it was to um, skill them up to fit into a workforce. Um, and if that workforce is no longer there, well, it, I mean, it's it's just a crazy paradigm. What would that mean for schooling, you know? Would we be looking at a different kind of schooling? What would that mean for universities? Are people going to be? I know a lot of reason. A lot of the re, a lot of people are just going to university to be able to come out at the end with a job, or some form of financial security. What if you were to tell every university student that you don't need to do that anymore? I think that school will be largely unchanged. Education is a important, an important hallmark of a developed society, in that I can't personally think of an excuse to 
be less educated than you are at any given point of time. And despite any child not wanting to go to school, ultimately at the other end, most would agree that it is generally a good thing for them, at least the formative years. And I think that ultimately we will just transition from seeing education as a means to an end and that university will be less of a factory for making degrees. I don't know. I I, I honestly, uh, I have an opposing view. I think the moment you tell people that they don't need to go and get their degree um, and they're going to earn an income without earning an income, um, I think it's going to change the way society functions over the long term in the sense that I feel like a lot less people are going to have the desire to go to university. Um, I think that even our education system could rapidly change. Um, I don't think, I don't know. I, I feel like with a shift that big, the whole, I guess, foundation of why we go to school is going to change. I think we're not going to... I don't know. I mean, maybe... I agree. Maybe schooling might remain the same, but I feel like tertiary education is going to change um, because that's more voluntary, and I think that's what's slightly more flexible. And I really do wonder what, what like right now, a successful tertiary education would be what, I guess, accounting, finance, a lot of these degrees that get a lot of these jobs, right? I really do wonder how, what, what the degree ratios are going to look like, you know? I wonder who what the most popular degrees are going to be. My mind just thinks programming, but maybe that's because I haven't thought of other implications of this change. I'd expect to see a lot more creativity, wouldn't you? Given mass automation. Even then, I don't think that even if it takes all of the incentive away from going to university or becoming further educated, I don't think that is a powerful enough argument to avoid the paradigm shift in economics. Because if our only drive to become more intelligent is that we can be better worker ants, well, because basically if our only drive to pursue further education is to perform jobs better, then is it worth it at all anyway? <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, we're already being coded out of our jobs um, through with website builders and app builders. Um, yeah. It definitely depends on the branch, I guess. It's it's super fascinating. I feel like you can automate, like you know, just going back to automation. I feel like you can automate a lot of a lot of jobs, but I feel like the one thing you can't really automate is ideas and innovation. I feel like artificial intelligence and automation seems very flashy and very um very scary but it's actually quite primitive in the sense that it can automate repetitive tasks that have some form of an algorithm behind it so you think about driving right you're basically at a very very fundamental level you're um reading your environment and you're deciding what decision to make out of a very very sub small subset of decisions that you could make um so that's something that's pretty easy to automate but the moment you need to use your brain 
with creativity or coming up with out of the box ideas, um, I feel like automation automation falls flat. Yeah, I think that's a pretty reasonable assertion. Um, in that we would see a lot more creative degrees being pursued, arts, music, theatre, more expressive art-related subjects. Yeah, I certainly see them going up in applications because I think human art forms will always have a influence. But once we start seeing some amazing machine learning generated Picassos, it's all over. No, it's a scary thought because I think we um, mentioned politicians in there in the middle and automation taking over politicians. And you might actually be right. I mean, they're probably some of the least creative, innovative people I've seen. Um, so, hey, <laughs> if nothing changes, AI can definitely do it. Yeah. But again, that's kind of a very small subset of the creative energy that's put into tasks generally by society, the innovation sector. In comparison to the greater picture, I do suppose that will be largely untouched. The rest of it, I couldn't really speak for. Yeah, I would be concerned about an instance of politician who was the product of supervised machine learning. Honestly, I would not be surprised at all. You tell me that half of the politicians today are products of supervised machine learning. I'd go, huh, that makes so much sense. But <laughs> I like those odds, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's very, very fascinating. Very far-reaching topic. Definitely. It's, it's definitely something I think we'd want to revisit in the future. Uh, it's such a broad topic. You've got so much going on here. And with no doubt, I bet you a year from now, there are going to be even more advancements in this field and even more applications in this field. 100%. We'll have to come back to this one. Definitely. Well, I guess until then, and our episode, I guess, next week, um, it was very, very good talking to you. Great talking to you as well, Shabazz. We've touched on plenty of social and economic implications regarding automation. We hope our listeners have enjoyed joining us today. As do I. I mean, uh, yeah, it's been, it's honestly been great. Awesome. Cheers, Shabazz. Until next time. Cool. Well, until next time, I guess uh, take care.